And we're up to Mishnah number 8 of chapter 2. And this is the fourth consecutive Mishnah that the author is Hillel. And the theme behind this Mishnah is that there's 10 things that people think they're one thing, but really they're something else. And I'm going to tell you these 10 things. I'll tell you what they really are. So let's read the Mishnah quickly, and then we'll go through it a bit by bit. Hu haya Omer, he would say, again, this is Hillel, this is something Hillel would say quite come frequently. And 200 years later, was codified into the Mishnah by his great-great-great-grandson, Rabbi Judah the Prince. Mar bebasar, maberima. The more flesh, the more worms. The more flesh someone has, the more worms they have. Mar benechasim, mar The more possessions, the more worry. Mar benashim, mar The more wives, the more witchcraft. Mar beshvachos, mar bezima. The more maidservants, the more lewdness. Mar beavadim, mar begezel. The more manservants, the more thievery, the more theft. So those are the first five things which are bad. And what's the five on the positive side? Mar Torah. On the other hand, the more Torah, Mar the more life. Mar Yeshiva, the more students. Mar the more wisdom. Mar the more counsel, the more Mar the more understanding. Mar Mar Shalom, the more charity, the more peace. And finally, Kanashem Tov Atzmo, one who gains a good name or a good reputation has gained it for his own benefit. And the one who has gained Karnala Divrei Torah, the one who has gained for himself Torah knowledge, Karnalo Chaye Aholam Abba. He acquired for himself the life of Olam Haba. So these teachings, obviously, there's a lot um, hidden beneath the surface of Hillel's reclassification of how we're supposed to think about certain things. So it begins with Marbe Basar Marbe Rima. The more flesh in one's body, the more worms. What does this mean? So all the commentaries explain that after someone dies, they get buried. What happens to the body when the body gets buried? It starts to decompose and be be chewed on by worms and maggots. That's what happens to the body. And therefore, if someone is really slight, well, there's not so much worms for the, for for the, the, there's not so much meat in the bone for the worms to chew on. But if, there is the person is somewhat uh, tumescent. Then there's a lot more meat, a lot more meat, uh, a lot more flesh for the worms to chew on. This is kind of a, like a nauseating thing to think about, but it's it's a very powerful lesson that's inherent in, in in this saying. And I would say the central conflict, the central challenge in our lives, according to the Torah, is what is our perspective on our life here. You know, we talk about the afterlife, and that. I have a pet peeve about the word afterlife because afterlife implies that there's life, which is primary, and there's something that comes after, which is like a nice bonus. It's, it's afterlife. But that seems to, the hierarchy then is there's life and then there's something that comes afterwards. It's like the after party. It's the party and then there's an after party. According to the Torah, it's it's kind of the opposite. The afterlife is, is life. And this is all preparatory. We're just getting ready. This is the corridor. It's one of the Mishnah we'll see later on. This world is a corridor. It's like a pathway. We're trying to reach, reach the destination. We're, we're coming to the party. So this life is really pre-life. And Olam the afterlife, is, is life. And I think that's really the message here. Because we are wired, we are oriented around seeing it the other way. We're oriented. This is the only world that we could, this is the only world that we could visualize and we could 
relate to in a sensory level. And therefore, this is the world that we say, this is what we've got. And the Torah is trying to train us and prepare us and to reframe, so to speak, our perspective that this world, we're trying to get somewhere. There's a destination, which is the goal. And therefore, everything that we should do here should be oriented around what's best going to help me achieve that aim, that central aim, which is the actual goal. And therefore, this comment of Hillel is a very powerful comment because he's saying someone who you know wants to indulge as much as possible in this world, really it's futile because what's the ultimate destiny of everybody? That it stops working. And there hasn't been a way, there hasn't been a workaround. And there's 8 billion people in the world today and every one of them in 150 years, maybe 200 years with the advances of science, but in some in near future is going to stop working. And therefore, it's just – we're like kicking the can down the road. It's, it's like this whole life here really. It's just it's – a, it's, a, it's a series of events that ultimately end in what he's describing, that the body starts to decompose and it becomes fair game for the worms and the maggots. And that's, of course, it's a depressing thought. But really what he's trying to, 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 to teach us is that, no, it shouldn't be depressing. It's just this is fact. And it's been fact – 2,000 years ago, it's been fact for really forever since the times of Adam. But recognizing the fact will help you to, okay, then think to recalibrate what are you really living for. And therefore, in the Torah's perspective, the fact that your body is going to decompose, that's by design because the body is a vessel that's holding your soul as your soul is trying to make its way home. As your soul is trying to journey to what's to its homeland, to, to where it comes from, from the spiritual world, what we call colloquially the afterlife. And therefore, when we realize that this body's orientation, the way we exist in our current iteration, a, a soul submerged in a body in this physical world, that is not the end game. And this powerful lesson or the powerful sta- short statement really brings that point home. Now, there's a uh, story in the Talmud. There's a few stories. This, this idea of the uh, post-mortem uh, contact between the body, the cadaver, and worms actually appears multitudes of places all over Jewish literature. It's not, uh, this is not the first time it shows up. Uh, there's one story uh, that I always... It's a very powerful story. It's brought down in the Talmud, in the book of Nidarm on page 9b. It tells of Shimon HaTzadik, Shimon the Righteous. If you remember back in chapter 1, we learned about Shimon the Righteous. He was the one of the last members of the men of the Great Assembly. And he was the high priest. So therefore, he was stationed in the temple. And what happened in the temple? Well, there were daily sacrifices in the temple. But there were also individual sacrifices that happened uh, t- from time to time. And there was one sacrifice called the sacrifice of the Nazir. The Nazir is someone who accepts upon him or herself a vow to abstain from several things, haircuts, any grape products coming into contact with dead people for a certain duration of time. And such a person, at the end of their term, would go to the temple, bring a sacrifice, and also cut off all their hair. That, that, that's the halacha. Now, today we don't do this anymore because if someone accepts upon, upon themselves a vow to become a Nazir, because we don't have a temple, there's no way to actually get out of it. 
So if you become a Nazir, you can become a Nazir, but you can't unbecome a Nazir. Therefore, there's actually a guy who lives in northern Israel who became a Nazir and has hair all the way down to his feet and looks like a total vagabond. Uh, because he's a Nazir and he can't get out of it until the temple's rebuilt and he goes and brings the sacrifice and cuts off all his hair. Even in the times of the Talmud, they frowned, the rabbis frowned upon people accepting upon themselves the vow of the Nazir. Certainly today, where you can't get out of it, it's not something that is encouraged at all. But Shimon, Shimon the Righteous would made, made a pronouncement. I don't like people who become a Nazir. I don't like it. It's like, it's, it's like artificial asceticism. It's not for us. We don't encourage it. But there was once a story about this one Nazir who came to the temple, and I enjoyed the story so much, this is the one time that I partook in the ceremony of the Nazir. What's the story? He tells the story. There was once a young man with long, flowing locks of hair who came from the south of the land of Israel and came to the temple. Why? He's here to bring his sacrifice and to get his hair cut. So Shimon, the righteous, the high priest, starts to debrief him, to interview him. Well, why did you decide to cut off your luscious hair? You know that in, in, part of the process, in, inherent to the process of, of the Nazir, is the other guy cut off your hair. This person has such beautiful flowing locks. Why would you want to do that? Why would you want to cut off your hair? So he tells him the story. I was a shepherd for my dad, and I was once taking my flock to the well or to the brook to get some water. And I saw my reflection in, in the water. And I saw how beautiful my hair was and how handsome I was. And suddenly, I had this uh, rush of the Yetzirah, of evil inclination, saying, you got to go sin, you got to maximize uh, your, your good looks with the ladies. And he wanted, and the Nazar continues, and my Yetzirah wanted to destroy me from the world. And therefore, I said to him, wicked one, why are you being prideful in a world that's not yours, in a body that will eventually be consumed by worms and maggots? I'm making a pledge right now. I'm going to cut off the hair for God. And right on the spot, he accepts upon himself the vow of the Nazir. And Shimon Atzadik now is talking. He's like, wow, he was so impressed. He kissed this Nazir on the forehead and he said, people like you should become a Nazir in the land of Israel, but not anyone else. That's the story. And I think he really, in in this account of the Nazir from the South, we really get kind of to the heart of the issue of what Hill is trying to convey here. The Yetzirahara was trying to get this Nazir, this lawn flowing lodge from the South, a lad, uh, to sin. What, what, by definition, a sin is an act that favors life and the uh, that optimizes for pleasure in this world. That's what a sin is. And therefore, the person's hair, so beautiful, it could be used for two purposes. It could be used for the physical world to try to, if, to capitulate to the Yetzirah sin, or it could be used for the mitzvah, for the Nazir, to, to cut it off in a ceremony of a mitzvah. And we see, what did he use? What did he employ? to motivate himself to use this body and this life for a mitzvah, he used Hillel's argument. How could you possibly consider 
the perspective of the Yetzirahara, that your life really is here and don't think about what's going to happen tomorrow. How do you optimize for pleasure in this world? How do you foil that? How do you thwart that argument by saying, okay, let's work this out. What's the ultimate destiny of the body? The ultimate destiny is the worms and maggots. And therefore, if the body is destined to have such a shameful end, it's ludicrous to suggest that that's really who you are, that God created humans to end up like that. No, it must mean that the soul and that aspect is really who we are, and therefore we should try to think of ways to advance the soul's agenda, and that is, of course, done with a mitzvah. So it's not just a morose take, uh, uh, a, a depressing take on life, that we're all, we're all going to end up as just being fodder for the worms. It's actually could be used... On a very positive sense, okay, well, that's not who we are, but what? But the soul is, is who we are, and that, of course, gives us an, a, an avenue, a path towards an eternal legacy. I don't want to spoil it, but there's a Mishnah in chapter 3 that says the exact same thing, well, in a different take. It says that all if you want to avoid sinning, all you need to do is look at three things. And one of them is look at where you came from. And the second one is, look where you're going. And the third is, look or recognize before whom you're going to, you're destined to give a, a reckoning and accounting before. And where you came from, you came from a putrid drop. You don't really have a very um, inspiring backstory, your body at least. And you're going to a place of ream of a tolea, a place of worms and maggots. And that, of course, is fact, that all the bodies end up there. And what that Mishnah is telling us, same idea that Hill is saying, that the perspective that leads us to go down the path of sin is because we don't actually recognize that the argument, the proponent, so to speak, of pursuing a life of prioritization of the body, we don't realize that it's actually, it's, it's a house of cards. It's a Ponzi scheme because ultimately it's going down to zero. The ultimate legacy of everybody is worms and maggots. And when we recognize that, we could say, okay, so what, what are we really living for? And that's, I think, the lesson, the ultimate lesson of the Mishnah. Now, there is, just to finish up on this point, there is an amazing Midrash that if we had all the time in the world, I would say, I would give it as homework, required reading, about the death of, of Moses all the way to the end of the Torah, the very last section in the Midrash, in the Midrash Rabbah. It's a very lengthy account. It talks about Moshe not wanting to die. And God says, okay, he's got to die. And of course, that's a theme of Deuteronomy. One of the themes of Deuteronomy is Moshe doesn't want to refuse, wants to go into the land of Israel. Uh, but God says, okay, we're going we're gonna to take Moshe's soul out of his body. And God sends angels. And Moshe thwarts them and just battles them. And God says, good angels. And Moshe says, no. And God says, bad angels that are sharpening their swords. I'm going to take Moshe's soul. And Moshe trounces them and steers them and sends them flying away. And then finally, there's a showdown, the ultimate showdown between God himself and Moshe's soul. And there's a dialogue between the two. It's a fascinating dialogue where God's speaking to the soul. Bt, my daughter. You know, the soul, the word... The Hebrew word for the soul in Hebrew is neshama, which is uh, which is the feminine. It's a, it's a feminine because every Hebrew word has an easier masculine and feminine. So God's addressing the soul. My daughter, come, I got a special place for you. 
And the soul, even though generally death for the soul is liberation, the soul says, no, no, I, I want to stay here. I've, I, there's no better place. I don't want to be next to your throne. I want to be in the body of Moshe. And what it says is something very fascinating, which to me really brings home this point. Is there, this is a quote, is there a holier or more pure body in the world, more pure than the body of Moshe, that in its history did never, never saw worms and maggots? That's what it says. And therefore, I want to stay here and ultimately God has to take it out by force, so to speak. But to me, what's so striking about this, because I always understood, is that the worms and the maggots appear in the body after death. Moshe's still alive. And Moshe's soul is saying, this body, over the course of its life, has not had worms and maggots. Which is implying that all other bodies have had worms and maggots. And to me, it was like, wait a minute, what does that mean? And I think, this is a little bit of a subtle point. My takeaway from this was that what happens to the body after death is exactly what happens to the soul during life. The Talmud tells us that a person's deeds, a person's sins, actually gnaws away at the soul. It actually implants itself and starts to corrupt and defile and sully the soul. And my takeaway from this was that what, ha- what, the, what the body does to the soul, so to speak, during, life, during the lifetime, the body together with the Yetzirah, sin does to the soul during the lifetime, that's exactly what happens to the body after death. And therefore, what Moshe's soul is telling us is that my, I have not been corrupted at all. There's no worms and maggots, so to speak, in the soul brought about by the body of Moshe, and therefore, like his soul is pure and his body is pure. And therefore, if you were to exhume Moshe, you wouldn't find that his body was chewed up by worms and maggots. Because only or, or to the degree that the person's soul was subject to defilement in life, that is the degree of defilement the body gets after death. And there was a story in the 19th century or maybe it might have been the 20th. You know what? I think it was the 20th century. I think it was like 1930-something. This story is widely accepted. It's widely documented. I, of course, was born in 1986. So I cannot say that I saw it, but it's been widely documented and you can Google it. The Gona Vilna, Rabbi Elijah Kramer of Vilna, who passed away in 1797. He was born from 1720 to 1797. He was the greatest Jew of the 18th century and maybe even of centuries prior. A monumental Torah style, knew all of Torah, everything by heart and backwards and forwards and everything. Um, and I actually have a whole podcast on his story on the Jewish History Podcast channel. I believe it was the Soviets. They were doing some sort of building project around the area where he was buried. And no matter, despite all interventions... They were going to disinter Jewish graves. Or I don't remember the exact story. Maybe they allowed a certain amount of graves to be disinterred, but the rest of them they just plowed over. I don't know the story, but regardless, they exhumed the Gona Vilna's body and reburied it somewhere else. And the story goes that 
they found him entirely intact. Not only that, they found that his beard was still wet because the Jewish body is, is buried in the, is plunged into the mikvah, into the ritual water, bath water, before it's buried. He said that his, his skin was entirely intact. Everything was, was untouched by the worms of the maggots. And his beard was still dripping wet as if it just came out of the mikvah five seconds ago, even though this was 150 years so it's been buried. And that's the idea. And this idea is found in many places uh, in Jewish literature. Again, this is a little bit of a like, kind of a creepy idea to talk about. But they, they actually inspected it, and it's true. They, they, they exhumed the Gona Vilna's, bo- Vilna's body, and they found it was entirely intact and untouched by uh, the creepy crawlers that uh, attack most other bodies. What Hill is saying is unimpeachable. The body stops working at a certain point. And that is an important lesson to think about, even though we know it's true. If you ruminate upon it and you say, okay, how should I model my actions, my, my priorities, my choices, given through the lens of this piece of knowledge, that's a very valuable exercise. And I think that's for sure a takeaway that we can have. That when we recognize that your body ultimately has a shelf life, therefore you start searching for, okay, what can I make that's an eternal legacy? Because that's something we all have inherent within us that we want to we want to live forever. We we don't like the idea of just disappearing into the dust of history. So the next thing that Hillel tells us is marbe nechasim, marbe daiga. The more possessions, the more worry. Now this is not to be misconstrued that we believe in asceticism. We believe that someone should have no material possession. <coughs> that we believe that no one should have material, any material possessions and just live for the spiritual world. That's not a Jewish ideal. That's that's other religions do that. We don't. In fact, the aforementioned nazir, the reason why uh, the nazir is frowned upon is because you're denying yourself pleasures. God gave us gave us wine to enjoy, and therefore, why would you say I don't want to enjoy it? God gave it for you to enjoy. So, what Hill is not trying to say is that. People should not try to amass possessions. What he's saying is that the benefits in this world and the things that come with prosperity do not come without any drawbacks. There are some drawbacks as well. Uh, There is a certain degree of worry that happens with people who have a lot. You know, you worry someone's going to break into your car. You don't have a car. You don't have that problem. Someone's going to steal your safe. Someone, uh, you're always checking your stocks. You know, what's going to happen? Is it going to be a trade war? I'm going to become... Um, what's happened to my 401k? Uh, of course, I, this does not mean that someone should not invest in their future. But what Hill is trying to tell, he's trying to moderate us a little bit. Again, along the same theme of the previous statement, that is that, yes, this world is good and partaking in it is good, but too much. Or if that's the sole focus, then it's, it, it's bad. And therefore, we should use it, but with the proper frame of mind that it's there to aid our spiritual journey. And therefore, he's saying that if you have a lot of possessions, you have all kinds of worry and anguish that you may lose it. And the more stuff you have, the more the more you may lose. There was a guy, I remember, he was a legend. Uh, he was a traitor. But he almost was able to sleep two hours a day. Why? Because the markets close here, but they open in Tokyo, and then they open there, and they close in the Nikkei, and then this, and then that. There's only two hours where there's no markets open. Those are the only two hours he has any decent sleep. So again, that person, of course, has a lot going for them, but there's also some drawbacks. I know I saw some people in Shul uh, uh, recently on their iPhone, and they're looking at the Stash app, and it was all red. 
I felt bad, you know, like just you're trying, trying, you're talking to God, but you're pulling out your phone to see how the stocks are doing, and you just have a sad feeling while you're praying. And that, of course, doesn't mean, again, not to uh, invest in equity. That's not what he's telling us. But he's telling us, okay, like there's a lot of worry that's going to come with that, and be aware of that. So the next teaching of the Mishnah, Mar Benashim, Mar The more wives, the more witchcraft. And again, this is someone who says, well, I want this. And I'm, I, I, I want a lot of wives to fulfill my carnal desires. And what he doesn't realize is that there's something else that comes with that, and that is witchcraft. So what this means is a question in the commentaries. Uh, some suggest that, well, you have multiple wives, now there's competition. And each one of them is vying for his attention, trying to seduce him with all kinds of aphrodisiacs and the like. And that's what the witchcraft is, the aphrodisiacs. Uh, alternatively, he's trying to seduce them. He, he's pursuing women at a high rate, and he's resorting to all kinds of chemical aids to help his uh, increase his mate value, so to speak. That's a life that uh, that's not what he sets out to get, and that's what it just kind of spirals out. There's like a vicious cycle where he doesn't even get what he sets out to get. And the final two of the negative ones are someone who has male and female servants. You have lots of female servants, you're going to have more lewdness, and lots of male servants, you're going to have more theft. And I saw something sort of really surprising in Rabbeinu Yonah on this, on this statement. Well, if someone wants to build a, you know, if someone has to have a large kind of household with lots of servants, what's wrong with that? Uh, so they're engaging in lewdness. It doesn't seem to imply that he's engaging in lewdness. So what is he? What, what's the concern if uh, the servants are engaging in lewd conduct? So Rabbi Yonah says something very surprising to me, at least, that the theft and the lewdness and the promiscuity that's going to happen in someone's own home by bringing in servants and having them behave in a very low moral way that is actually going to be, because it's in your house and you could have prevented it, you're actually responsible for it. And he goes, he says something very, very harsh. He says, it's as if you partook in it because you welcomed it into your home. And I think the way he understands this is that be careful what kind of influences you're, you're going to bring into your house. Even if you yourself are not going to engage in that kind of conduct, but because you're opening up your home to this sort of behavior, it is reflective on you and maybe even could be pinned on you because you're allowing this conduct into your house. But there's a good side here. If someone has lots of Torah, they have lots of life. And this theme is echoed all over Jewish literature that Torah equates to life. Why? So first of all, there's a verse uh, in Deuteronomy, a very famous verse, that man needs more than bread alone. You need also the word of God. And the way this is understood is that we exist in two almost opposing realities. We have the body and we have the soul. They're similar, but they're opposite. They're similar because they both need sustenance and nourishment. But they're opposites because the nourishment of the body is the opposite or is, is different than the nourishment of the soul. The body needs bread, it needs water, it needs oxygen. The soul needs Torah, it needs mitzvos. It, it needs the spiritual nourishment, sustenance. And therefore, man doesn't need just bread. You need also the word of God. You need the counterweight, the, the bread, the spiritual bread for, for the soul. And therefore, you, the more Torah you have, the more life you have, the more vitality uh, you have. And it's interesting 
the sources say that man, if you break down man to the components, the limbs and sinews, the actual number that you'll end up with is 613. The Talmud says this, that there's 613 parts of, of, of the human body. And corresponding to that, you have the 613 mitzvahs. Each mitzvah relates to one part of the body because that's kind of the, the body and the soul, so to speak, are mirrors of each other. And just like the body has 613 parts that each needs, needs to be nourished, the soul also has 613 parts that each, each needs to be nourished, and each mitzvah corresponds and feeds, so to speak, one part of, of the soul. But the Rav Chaim Velazhner in Nefesh Chaim in section 4, number 29, he says something very fascinating. He says, Torah, well, Torah is like a multivitamin. That Torah study itself, not, it doesn't, doesn't just feed one isolated part of the soul, so to speak. It doesn't infuse life into one part of the soul. It actually, it's like a, it's like a magic, uh, it's, 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 like, it's like a magic miracle drug. It's a, it's a superfood. It gives food to the whole, it infuses life into the whole soul. And therefore, that's what he's saying. The more Torah you have, the more life you're actually giving to your soul. The more yeshiva, the more chachma. What does that mean? The more students, the more wisdom you have. If someone, ha- you know, if someone has to teach a student, then they well, they may, they might need to prepare. If someone has to teach fifteen students, then the amount of preparation has to go up because the amount of questions that you may have, and the 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 result of that process is is a more sharpened wisdom, and therefore the more students you have the more wisdom that you're going to have. And I saw, actually, one of the commentators has an interesting idea here. He says, the more Torah, the more Torah that you're studying, the more it sharpens your mind. And that will extend not just to matters of the spiritual, but also to matters of the material. When someone studies Torah, it makes their mind kind of like a razor sharp. And therefore, that could be applied in every area where the mind needs to be used, not just Torah itself. So you say, he says, you take someone, they study Torah, but they're totally ignorant to matters of the world. And you drop them into the world. You drop them into the finance desk or to the technology room or to the boardroom or to the engineering workshop. And wherever they are, because their mind is so honed and sharpened because of their Torah study, it actually could help them in areas of life where they haven't been actually technically trained in, but they have, so to speak, the, the, the tool, the mind that is applicable in all those other areas. The more study, the more wisdom. What's the next one? The more counsel, the more understanding. We have a tendency to think that we know we have all the answers. And it takes a dose of humility to say, you don't, I don't know the answers and I have to go ask someone. I have to go uh, seek counsel. And Hill here is encouraging us, the more counsel, the more understanding, because we, each one of us has a certain perspective. And we have a narrow band of, of, of experience, of insight, of intellect, and of, of Weltanschauung. But the more people you expose a given dilemma to, the broader perspective you're going to earn. Because every person has a different take and a different system of, of processing information and examining and dissecting dilemmas. 
and more different life experiences, more diverse life experience. And therefore, even though it demands a lot uh, of someone to go seek counsel because it's a tacit acknowledgement of their own ignorance or their own lack of answers, but when they do that, they actually get more understanding. And in fact, the Muslim masters would always encourage people to ask advice, but not just to ask advice from the experts, ask advice from people that are less talented than you, that are less wise than you, that are less capable than you, and you ask their advice and follow their advice, because that will help you gain humility. To go ask advice is difficult. To go ask advice from someone who's less intelligent than you is even more difficult. Go do that, because that exercise will ultimately yield that you'll become a more perfect uh, character. The last uh, of these aphorisms are Mar Marba Shalom. The more charity, the more peace. Rabbeinu adds that not only does charity bring about peace, but not just when someone themselves gives to charity, but when someone encourages others to give, that too increases peace. Someone may say, listen, I'll give, but I don't want to get other people to give because they may get mad at me. And what, what Hillel is telling us, according to Rabbi Yonah, is that not just when someone themselves gives, but someone encourages others to give, and they think, oh gosh, that person will hate me for encouraging them to give. What they don't realize is that will actually bring about peace, because ultimately that's what their friend wants to do as well. And they're just helping them, nudging them uh, in the direction where they really want to go. And they'll be happy, and there'll be actually more peace as a result of that encouragement. Uh, and finally... The Mishnah ends with the, 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 this statement. If someone acquires a good reputation, he has it for his own benefit. And this seems to kind of dovetail with a lot of the things we saw. What Hill is saying, what do you really have? If, you, if it's your possessions, well, what happens when you die? Or what happens to God if someone steals that for you? You have all the worry, all the concern. All these things that you think really are yours maybe aren't really yours in the, in, in the light of these revelations. But your good name, your good reputation, that really is yours. And in this world, certainly, you can know that your good actions, that accrues to your name. And of course, in, in, in Jewish philosophy, someone's name is their essence. And therefore, if their name is good, then their essence is good. And that, of course, is something which is much more empowering to know that they are becoming a good person. That's really theirs. And finally, if you have the words of Torah, you have the life of Olam Abba. Beyond a good name, which is a reputation, which is someone's essence in this world, is the fact that the Torah that they're going to study is actually their ticket, their golden ticket to eternal life in Olam Abba. And that, of course, is what we call the afterlife, but really it's life. And that's what he's trying, the message he's trying to get is that let's think about the existence of our soul and the life of our soul and the destiny and the legacy of our soul. And let's put that at the forefront of our minds because that's ultimately who we are, not just for 70, 80, 90, 100, 150 years, but forever. That's who we really are. And our soul to the body is, so to speak, like a person to like a garment. The reason why the soul and the body each have 613 parts is because the body is tailored to fit the soul. We always think of it as the opposite. We think that the, the soul is an accessory to our body. But really, it's the opposite. The body is the accessory to the soul. And when someone dies, it's almost as if they're just taking off their fleshy pants and fleshy garment. 
and but their soul is, st- is still alive, even more alive now. And the conflict of our life is that we, the Yitzhahara, the evil inclination, makes us identify as the garment. We think that we're the garment. That's who we really are. And therefore, that's we direct all our efforts towards advancing the health of the garment. It's like those people who have those rollers, you know, the rollers that they take up the lint. And that's what they do. Their whole life is they're lint rolling their garment. Like, how do I make my garment more, more nice? But themselves, they don't care about. You start identifying as the, as, as the garment and not as the person themselves. And I, I want to add something. We know today that every day you're like upgrading and we have the physician tell us that this is actually true. You're upgrading your cells. You're, you're constantly replenishing your cells of your body and you're throwing away the old cells and getting new cells. So what that means is your body today is not even the same body that it was yesterday. There's millions of cells that are different. Millions of particles, of components of your body that it's not even the same today as it was yesterday. So how could you say you're, you're one person? Yeah, your person is your body. No, your body is ever-changing. It's not even one thing. It's like, again, it's like, it's like a rental car. You, you know, it doesn't, you don't really think about it because, you, you know, it's like you got one today, you got a different one tomorrow. It's not who you are. You, you are you. And I want to theorize, this is me speculating here, that the Almighty made it like that, that the cells replenished to give us this message. And from what I heard, and again, I don't know if this is true, I'm not a scientist or a biologist or a physician, but that every seven years, the entirety of your body on a kind of molecular level, on a cell level, is entirely different than the way it was seven years prior. So how could you say you're the body? How could you say that when it's constantly changing and, and, you're, and, and it's not even a, a physical thing that, that, that remains constant even for the 70 years? I heard from a dear friend of mine that maybe this is why the debts are annulled every seven years because your body's in a seven-year cycle and therefore the body that you have today is entirely different than the body you had seven years ago. You can't come and demand payment from this body that was for a loan that was borrowed from a previous body. That's why it's a seven-year cycle. Absolute stroke of genius. However, even though your body is constantly changing the cells, there's actually one part of the body that the cells remain constant. And the cells that you were born with are the cells you die with. That's your brain. And maybe what this means is it kind of hints to the spiritual side, the, the, the ability of your mind to transcend your body. It's, it's spiritual. To be able to conceive Torah, to connect, to understand, to have awe, trepidation of God, that's in your mind. And therefore, that kind of is more related to your spiritual side. And therefore, those cells don't disintegrate, don't diminish, you don't lose them, you don't filter them out because that relates to your soul. Maybe, that's my theory. Regardless, a lot of very powerful lessons here from Hillel. And uh, we'll look forward to the next Mishnah where we meet one of Hillel's students, Rabbi Yochanan Bezakai, who became the leader of the Jewish people at a very critical juncture in Jewish history.